You're listening to a recent Abbey Theatre talk. You can get more information on future talks in the series by visiting www.abbeytheatre.ie. Hello, everyone, and um, it's very nice to be here, and it is particularly nice to be here to talk about one of my gods, George Bernard Shaw. Um, Although I do have to admit that having a conversation almost a year ago with Theoc Mokanil, um, we were babbling on, and he was talking that, about putting on Major Barbara, and he said to me, um, you know, because I was getting so excited, and he said, you know an awful lot about him. I said, he's my God. And he said, oh, great, will you give the show a lecture? And I thought, crikey, what have you walked yourself into now? <laughs> so I hope I won't bore you, and I hope I can do him justice. George Bernard Shaw, he had a passion for clarity from the day he began as a young critic with the Pall Mall Gazette and the Saturday Review in the 1880s. It was a clarity which had been championed two and a half thousand years earlier by no less a man than Confucius who wrote, if language is not correct, then what is said is not what is meant. If what is said is not what is meant, then what must be done remains undone. If this remains undone, morals and art will deteriorate. If justice goes astray, the people will stand about in helpless confusion. Hence, there must be no arbitrariness in what is said. This matters above everything. That, interestingly enough, is more or less what Adolphus Cousins says in the first act of Major Barbara. And it sums up Shaw's entire writing career with its passion for clarity of political approach and his championing of art as the essential core of human progress. But truth in criticism is an odd quality. I read your critique, but what did you really think is a common question for the critic who pays writers and artists the compliment of taking them seriously. And I am sure there were people who disbelieved Shaw or claimed to misunderstand him when he wrote with pellucid clarity, as for instance of Henry Irving, known for truncating Shakespeare's work to suit his own devices. In a true republic of art, Sir Henry Irving would ere this have expiated his acting versions on the scaffold. He does not merely cut plays, he disembowels them. A man who would do that would cut the coda out of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or shorten one of Velazquez's Phillips into a Kit Kat to make it fit over his drawing room mantelpiece. That one appeals actually particularly to me in an era and a country where we have self-styled art lovers who seem to get away with looking for art to be nice and undemanding. For such people who usually go to the theatre for the frocks, thought-provoking reality is unnecessary and offensive in contemporary art. And when art in any of its forms becomes a commodity with which the bourgeoisie, many of them Philistines, use for the sole reason of buying social status, we have need of the plain speaking of George Bernard Shaw to cut us down to size. And he did it all with humor, frequently ironic, because it was only pretension and hypocrisy that he found unforgivable. Unfortunately for Ireland, one of our abiding sins was hypocrisy. But Shaw always continued to hope that we might grow out of it as he had hoped we would raise our heads in a liberal international community free of Catholic church domination once we achieved independence. Nobody could deny he was a crank, 
But again, it was in the best possible way. He preached endlessly in everything from his letters to his journalism and indeed his plays, which made and still makes people suspicious of the plays and avoid his prose writings. But just think about it. In one definition, a crank is brisk, lively, and whimsical. What people frequently miss or choose to ignore is Shaw's immense kindness. He was endlessly helpful when he felt people needed or deserved help. And in the case of Lady Gregory, was also endlessly patient with her constant badgering and imperious assumption that he'd nothing better to do than be her guiding life and theatrical mentor. And as far as I'm concerned in this defense of his humor, patience, and kindness, one of my own more whimsical arguments in his favor is the fact that he cheated. He cheated while playing Hunt the Thimble with Lady Gregory's granddaughters, visibly and mischievously, so that the little girls could catch him out and make him go all hangdog. There's something irresistibly charming about that, and it sure as heck isn't cranky. It was easy to admire or even revere the great writer who was our first Nobel laureate, the man of principle whose notion of socialism was a society led by an intellectual elite, and who believed passionately that education should be based on questions rather than answers. And then you found that childless, he hadn't only frequently spent time amusing two little girls, he'd also found the surest far way to enchant them, be naughty. This wasn't George Bernard Shaw of popular imagination. It was certainly not George Bernard Shaw of Man and Superman and Heartbreak House, but of course it was. Humanity lies at the heart of all Shaw's work. His passion may stem from intellectual impatience that the human race is selling itself short, rather than what he saw as the more ephemeral intensity of desire. But he wants the best for us. He wanted the best for the future, a future in which he never lost hope. And when somebody has hope, they're joyous. They may criticize, but they do not condemn. Shaw condemned very little, and if he preached, he did it not to impose, but to convert to a freer way of thinking. But he certainly heaved a lot of disappointed sighs when he looked at the world at large, and in particular, when he looked at what Ireland had done with her freedom. But it all sprang from seeing things clearly. He defined his Irishness not through either empire loyalism or the misty-eyed, rose-tinted glasses of emergent nationalism, but as something that simply made him a foreigner in any other country, as he replied in old age to a question as to how far his mental makeup had been influenced by being Irish. In the preface to John Bull's Other Island, he writes, when I say I'm an Irishman, I mean that I was born in Ireland and that my native language is the English of Swift and not the unspeakable jargon of the mid-19th century London newspapers. My extraction is the extraction of most Englishmen. That is, I have no trace in me of the commercially imported North Spanish strain which passes for Aboriginal Irish. I am a genuine, typical Irishman of the Danish, Norman, Cromwellian, and of course, Scottish invasions. I am violently and arrogantly Protestant by family tradition, but let no English government therefore count on my allegiance. I am English enough to be an inveterate Republican and home ruler. Accused at the time of being deliberately and mischievously provocative, that argument presages something that I've always believed, that in many ways the United Kingdom, and especially England, is effectively more a republic than Ireland is, or rather, at the time GBS wrote John Bull's Other Island, would become. Its parliament is independent of both crown and church, whereas the Irish Free State, and later the Republic, dedicated itself to Rome and to God. 
therefore annulling the Republican core value of the people being supreme. And that, I have found, is as unpopular a view to have in 2013 as it was when Shaw expressed it in 1907. But with such a defiant definition of Irishness, which even at the time he wrote it went against what was acceptable in an Ireland coming increasingly under the influence of Gaelic League romanticism, it's perhaps not surprising that Shaw was suspect by his fellow countrymen. Rather the way today, we accept Northern Ireland Protestants into our midst, but only provided they apologize for their heritage and imply that they're ashamed of it. To this day, I believe that academic criticism of Shaw, and I'm talking about criticism from either Irish or Irish-American sources, is influenced by a subliminally nationalist approach to his opinions. That interpretation of his views on Ireland concludes that he felt bitter and antagonistic towards his own country. I believe that if what I can best call an internationalist, non-judgmental stance is taken, the writings can be seen as fair, clear, and essentially truthful. Candidness and self-knowledge are not qualities with which most Irish people are particularly endowed, given our propensity for self-justification and self-pity, and the mindless immaturity, which nearly three quarters of a century after Shaw's death, still makes us blame somebody else for all our national ills. It wasn't me, mum, we whine. It was baby brother, big brother, big government, big oppressor. In other words, today, it's the ECB and the IMF. In Shaw's younger days, it was Britain. We still haven't faced up to ourselves as Shaw believed we would once we had our independence. The skirts of our former oppressors are still the shield behind which we hide by blaming them ultimately for our rejection of the free thinking dignity which Shaw longed for us to embrace. Prophetically, he wrote that there is no Irish race any more than there is an English race or a Yorkshire race. There is an Irish climate which will stamp an immigrant more deeply and durably in two years, apparently, than the English climate will in 200. It is reinforced by an artificial economic climate which does some of the work attributed to the natural geographic one. But the geographic climate is eternal and irresistible, making a mankind and a womankind that Kent, Middlesex, and East Anglia cannot produce and do not want to imitate. It's breathtaking to think that Shaw wrote that in 1907, before the First World War seemed even imminent. And it remains blindingly obvious in its truth after two destructive world wars, which altered the map of Europe as well as its political thinking. And almost exactly 50 years before the signing of the Treaty of Rome, which set up the then European Economic Community as the bulwark against future European war. The treaty carried within it, the signatories hoped, the seeds of European political union. And it's hard not to believe that Shaw wouldn't have been an enthusiastic supporter of such a union, given his antipathy to all forms of nationalism. Nationalism stands between Ireland and the light of the world, he writes succinctly, again in the preface to John Bull's Other Island. He was writing in defense of home rule for Ireland and believed that with what now seems like touching naivete, that nationalism would fade from the Irish consciousness once home rule was achieved. And as we know, neither its achievement nor the achievement of what we trumpet as the Republic has made us abandon its narrow waterways. Writing in the New Statesman as early as 1916, he equated nationalism with conceit, ignorance, insular contempt for foreigners, and bad manners masquerading as patriotism. Given that he was also on record, as I've said, as believing in home rule for Ireland, it follows that he hoped his country would transcend such nationalism to become a true republic. 
We can only guess his reaction to Day's cynical equating of the two. Admittedly, his championing of internationalism and socialism did blind him to the horrors of Stalinism in the 20s and 30s. But in refusing to condemn its barbarism, he was operating within a mindset of the rise of fascism. He was still a believer in the possibility of a benign move towards international socialism. But the Second World War and those who caused it effectively killed that off, following on its having been mortally wounded by the victory of Franco in the Spanish Civil War. Paradoxically, Shaw toyed with the idea of dictatorship as a solution when he wrote Beyond Bullies in 1948. Democracy, he suggested, had given us populations who vote for Hitlers, who call on them to exterminate Jews, for Mussolinis, who rally them to nationalist dreams of glory and empire, in which all foreigners are enemies. It's unarguable. Indeed, it had been argued as far back as Plato's Republic, as a condemnation of the common people's inability to choose wisely when swayed by a power-seeking demagogue. And Shaw had even flirted with the notion of eugenics as far back as 1910 in the Eugenics Education Society. And he still believed that natural attraction rather than wealth or social class should motivate marriage. That, roughly speaking, had been the theme of his early novels, and he saw it as the essence of eugenics. And he also approached the notion of class with a degree of humor, neither willing himself into the higher echelons of the bourgeoisie, despite the existence of a baronetcy in the family, or consciously casting himself into the class of jobbing journalist. In the preface to his first novel, Immaturity, which was written in 1879, but not published until 1930, the preface was written shortly before the book's publication, he points out that his father, after essaying a clerkship or two, at last had his position recognized by a post in the forecourts, an office so undeniably superfluous that it actually got demolished before I was born. And my father naturally demanded a pension for the outrage. Having got it, he promptly sold it and set up in business as a merchant dealing wholesale, the family dignity made retail business impossible, in flour and its cereal concomitants. Such mischievous pretension pricking stands in marked contrast to, for example, the Yeatsian pomposity of family status, when in fact it could be said that the Yeatses were effectively shopkeepers. Although it must also be admitted in passing that Yeats at one stage wrote to Shaw to say that, you have laughed at the things that are ripe for laughter and not when the ear is still green. Presumably he wasn't including his own gargantuan lack of humor among the things that Shaw found ripe for laughter. However that may be, Shaw saw his family status firmly in the category of shabby genteel. But perhaps what is most significant about the family poverty, exacerbated by his father's drunkenness, which went hand in hand with the public persona of teetotalism, was that it gave the young Shaw his first opportunity to display the independence of spirit and dedication to the dignity of work that was to be his credo for the rest of his life. At the age of about 13, feeling that he should start being adult. He sought employment as a warehouse boy in the cloth merchant firm of Scott, Spain and Rooney on the Dublin Quays. About to be set to work by one of the partners, another, an older man, took one look at the little boy and sent him about his business, castigating his parents for their lack of consideration in trying to set such a young child to work. Years later, Shaw set down his gratitude in that preface to immaturity also commenting ruefully that throughout his life, I wrote as my father drank. And that was prodigiously, with his output of 63 plays, 
and the even more startling figure of 250,000 letters in the course of his long life, in which he poured out philosophy, advice, and ruminations, his preoccupations ranging across marriage, religion, government, healthcare, and social class, always social class. The belief in female dignity through the earning of one's own living in all circumstances was never to leave shore. He understood that belief in the dignity of work for its own sake usually got buried in that bitter struggle for survival which working class women and that women in such circumstances might long for release into idleness. And much though he deplored the principle, far worse in his eyes was the situation of their educated middle class sisters who had the luxury of choice and all too often, again in his eyes, made the choice of idleness or at best dabbling in employment when it suited them as a pretty little pastime, rather than seeing it as a lifelong commitment. In his campaigning days, Shaw had believed that when women became emancipated, they wouldn't merely win the right to work alongside men as they voted alongside them, but he believed they would be honest enough to want to, regarding paid employment as a duty as well as a right. He died still hoping. The neo-feminist notion of the right not to work was not the equality of class and gender Shaw envisaged when, with Beatrice and Sidney Webb, he founded the Fabian Society in 1884, which advocated a socialism based on reason and choice rather than revolution and blood. The logical follow-on to that was an educated, thinking middle class. And once again, Shaw was in the vanguard when, a year later, he co-founded the London School of Economics, which in the years since has been responsible for the educational formation of some of the most eminent liberal thinkers and politicians in the UK and indeed worldwide. By 1919, disappointment was beginning to seep through. Heartbreak House was written in that year, and the horrors of the First World War had mitigated the shining hopes of a rationally achieved international socialist society. It is said, he wrote, that every people has the government it deserves, it is more to the point that every government has the electorate it deserves, for the orators of the front bench can edify or debauch an ignorant electorate at will. Thus, our democracy moves in a vicious circle of reciprocal worthiness and unworthiness. The heartbreak is obvious, as the great man watched the devastated survivors of the trenches limp their way to oblivion, the promised land fit for heroes, a myth and a betrayal that was to descend into the great strike of 1926. Reginald Golding Bright, who was later to become Shaw's agent, wrote to the great man in 1894. He was 20 years old and looking for advice on becoming a drama critic. Shaw replied that, it happens by accident, but when the accident happens, it happens to a journalist. It is to men who are already in the profession and known as men who can write and who know the ways of papers that editors turn when a vacancy occurs. Remember, to be a critic, you must be not only a bit of an expert in your subject, but you must also have literary skill and trained critical skill too. The power of analysis, comparison, etc. To qualify myself for the post I now hold on the staff of the world. The letter is a long one, an extraordinary gesture of generosity to an unknown young man and is the beginning of a correspondence, sadly, Golding Bright's side of it is no longer in existence, that continued until 1928, and is in itself a handbook for theatre criticism. 
A few months later, having previously recommended that his young correspondent, thank you, write a book without seeking to have it published, he now says, you will never write a good book until you have written some bad ones. First time authors, take note. Shaw also advises the young Bright to leave home and cease being dependent on his father. Two months later, Bright having followed his advice, he writes exultantly to him, I congratulate you, especially on the fact that all your friends and relations regard you as a madman. That is an indispensable beginning to a respectable, independent life. But perhaps Shaw's most extraordinary and revealing correspondence was with Augusta Gregory. It began in 1909, a few months after the death of Singh. Lady Gregory sought Mr. and Mrs. Shaw's advice on producing a collection of his work. The subsequent letter from Shaw is detailed, practical, and as ever, extraordinarily helpful. And he goes on to ask if Lady Gregory's own plays are published. I should like to know where they can be got on occasion. Don't give them to me. Never give people books. I never read books that people give me. But when I buy them, I feel I have to throw, uh, I have to read them or I will feel that I have thrown my money away. And let this sordid truth be your golden rule through life. The correspondence was to continue until 1931, the year before her death. And it never fails in its common sense offerings, its unfailing generosity of both spirit and finance. In fact, one has to conclude that Augusta Gregory was a pest demanding his assistance in everything from the future of the Abbey through the education of her orphaned grandchildren to methodologies for getting the Lane bequest returned to Ireland. True to form, of course, the old lady seldom took the advice she'd sought. But he never appears to feel personally exasperated, although flashes of rage do come through from time to time. She even demanded Shaw's help in writing and having published her book, Our Irish Theatre, which was published in New York in 1913. At the time, Shaw's mother was suffering a series of strokes and his wife was seriously ill while he was overseeing rehearsals of Captain Brassbound's conversion and Caesar and Cleopatra. Yet he found time to offer suggestions on her work and to joke that at the age of 56, he is violently in love with Mrs. Patrick Campbell because you told me I ought to. A lesser man would have told his dear Lady Gregory exactly where to get off. In the same year, he still manages to retain a sense of humor when Margaret Gregory, widow of Lady Gregory's son, asked him to be godfather to her infant daughter. The reply read, never. I am continually defending children against these outrages. How do you know she will not abhor my opinions or that I may not be hanged yet? Besides, if I undertook at the font to see to her religious education, I should do it. And then where would she be? But when Lady Gregory asked him in 1917 to lecture on settling the Irish question, his reply was explosive. The very words nation, nationality, our country, patriotism, fill me with loathing. Why do you want to stimulate a self-consciousness which is already morbidly excessive in our wretched island and is deluging Europe with blood? if we could only forget for a moment that we are Irish and become really Catholic Europeans, there would be some hope for us. Since my recent visit, that was to Ireland, I feel like putting up a statue to Cromwell. Not exactly a sentiment likely to appeal to either Yeats or Lady Gregory, 
despite it being uttered as thousands of young men were being slaughtered in the trenches of the First World War. Nor was he less forthright on the Abbey itself from time to time. In 1919, he resisted Lady Gregory's determination to stage Androcles and the Lion, believing the stage to be far too small and the required effects too complex. But he finally wrote, I wash my hands of Androcles. Let Mr. Sean Barlow do his worst, since you are resolved to murder my poor play. There is no use talking to you. You are simply the most obstinate and unscrupulous devil on earth, and I well know the vanity of remonstrance. In 1920, having attended a matinee of The Devil's Disciple, he wrote, an execrable performance, not improved by the hideous nervousness my presence set up. They are not up to my stage tricks anyhow, poor lambs. Essie was a helpless oaf, too young and unused to the stage for her job. Dick tried to be smart all through and had no suspicion that the part should be full of somber music. He was horribly discordant. Burgoyne was too nervous to make his words audible and so dropped most of his points. And Burgoyne, by the way, was played by the legendary F.J. McCormick. And the following year, in reply to yet another request for assistance, probably involving financial subscription, he wrote, I feel provoked to say that if the child needs so much nursing, it had better die. Why should it survive when so many other children are being killed? Let it go smash. Anyhow, I'm so utterly dead beat by six months continuous work without even a Sunday out that I'm leaving London for a little tour of Wales or somewhere. And if the existence of the Abbey is incompatible with that, the Abbey shall perish. I think it should, I should do you a good turn by demolishing it. Of course, as usual, he relented. But perhaps his underlying feeling is best illustrated by what he wrote in the Bristol Evening Post as late as 1946. It is folly to call the Abbey Shelter a national theater. It has a heroic history, but it never was a theater and never will be. Compared to the National Library and National Gallery, it's an insult to dramatic art. It might be taken merely as a condemnation of the original Abbey building, but the sideswipe at the company history reveals the great man's feelings concerning the venture itself, implying a certain lack of achievement. One might say it was inadvertent, except that George Bernard Shaw didn't do inadvertent. In a letter of thanks after staying at Cool in 1910, early in their acquaintance, Shaw wrote, the change from last night at Cool is very fearful. But the hotel is quite good, central entry. Cool, cool must seem very quiet now that I've stopped talking. One can only wonder if he knew then how much would be demanded of him in forthcoming years, how much he would have to say, and the revealing record that his correspondence with the old lady of Abbey Street would become. In 1910, at the, at the request of Curtis Brown, Lady Gregory's literary agent, Shaw had written a eulogy for publicity purposes. Fortunately for the world, the public duty of nursing the Irish National Theatre thrust itself on her before it was too late. In those early days of the struggle of that institute, institution for existence, everybody had to do what they could. I must not say that the actors had to shift the scenes and the actresses to darn the wardrobe, the authors to write the playbills and paint the scenes, and the managers to sweep out the box office and so forth. But I feel quite sure that whenever anything was wanted, whether it was a scrubbing brush or an Irish play, Lady Gregory was appealed to as general housekeeper to supply it. The scrubbing brush she bought and may even have wielded. 
Over the next 20 years, George Bernard Shaw put his energy, kindness, and eminence behind that opinion, usually tolerantly, always forthrightly, although the rest of us may doubt the likelihood of the autocratic Augusta on her hands and knees with a scrubbing brush. That was more likely to fall to the duty of a Sarah Allgood or a Moira O'Neill, since she imperiously regarded her actors in the same way she did her maids at Coup. Shaw's massive achievements brought him the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1925. His instinct was to refuse it, but his wife pointed out that acceptance would be good for Ireland, and he changed his mind, but he refused the monetary prize. A generation later, he turned down the Order of Merit. It was offered in 1946, with Britain once again in post-war ruins and facing the rebuilding of both society and infrastructure. Few men had contributed more to the intellectual world of an adopted country than had George Bernard Shaw, or indeed to his own, although we've yet fully to acknowledge our debt to him. But in his refusal, he claimed that merit in authorship could only be determined by the posthumous verdict of history. And I hope that what I've said this evening will add even the tiniest amount to the sum of our gratitude to a man who cared so much for Ireland and so much for its people as well, indeed, despite his sometime weariness with Augusta Gregory, as he did for the Abbey Theatre. Thank you all for coming. So um, we've got time for some questions. We've got about 10 minutes or so. Um, so I'm going to ask you if you can use the mic uh, so we can, we can record it uh, and a lot other people can hear. So have you got any questions at all? Right at the back. Thank you so much. Um, could you speak a bit to his relationship with Singh and O'Casey? Um, he didn't, um, sorry, I'd better, better stand up again. And I'm sorry, by the way, if anybody I know um, asks a question, you'll forgive me for not recognizing you. I'm currently working with a bit of an eye problem. So um, he didn't have a relationship as such with Singh, but he was an enormous admirer of O'Casey. He regarded him as an absolute titan and wrote exultantly to him um, on, on that subject and was extremely angry uh, when the Abbey turned down um, the silver tassy, extremely angry, and said so, as you can imagine. <laughs> Any more questions? Um, hello. So, um, I, I came late, so I hope you haven't covered this, but it's just, um, uh, it has been said that Shaw, or at least I've read uh, recently, that um, Shaw was on, rather unhappy in ways about the popularity of Pygmalion, his most popular play, because he felt um, that it might trivialise his, I don't think he was concerned about his reputation, perhaps you could comment on this, but uh, that it might trivialise the, the seriousness of some of his later plays, the, the heavier plays, that the idea is that people might think that he was just for, for popular consumption and not uh, put weight on, on the mm -hmm. ideas he put forward in his plays. Would you have a comment on that or did you treat with it earlier? Well, I, I don't think he was the first, nor will he be the last um, writer of eminence and seriousness 
to be overwhelmed by a sudden flush of enormous popularity. Uh, you know, just um, offhand, the same thing exactly happened to Evelyn Waugh with Brideshead Revisited, which he said lost him um, any respect he had gained with his peers. Um, but I think he, he just was fearful uh, that, I think not so much that it, it would um, take attention from his more serious work, because he actually regarded Pygmalion as quite a serious work, but that it would be misunderstood and regarded as a piece of frivolity, as indeed happened um, you know, when, he, when it was turned into a musical and when it was filmed. The ending was very much changed, and it was made to seem as though um, Eliza might have married. Um, uh, uh, I've gone blank on his name. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Thank you, uh, uh, married Higgins. And, um, and he said so in an, uh, um, a note to the play in, um, you know, much later on in the 1940s. And that, you know, he was very, very angry about that. And he, because it is very, very definite that he believes that she probably did marry Freddie and lived to rue it. I have a question, Ema. Um, you, you've seen a lot of Shaw plays as a drama critic. Mm -hmm. um, what's distinct? Not as many as I'd like. Well, we'll do our best to change that. Um, <laughs> um, what is distinctive about him as a dramatist, and, and how do you do Shaw well? Uh, the way you do Shaw well is not condescend to your audience, but I don't think that um, any play can be done well if either a director or a cast or a producer decides to condescend to an audience. Um, the plays can be awkward and they can be difficult. They are, they are, are very intellectually passionate um, and they are also extremely funny if you, if you don't try to make the humor cheap. Um, even Major Barbara is extremely funny and it's a very serious play. Uh, whereas you know, something like, say, You Never Can Tell, um, almost plays as a farce and in fact doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't suffer by that, but it too is making a serious point. So I, th I think the most important thing is to give the plays their weight and let them speak for themselves. But you can say that about any play. Any more questions? Yes? Hang on, I wouldn't dream of telling you what to look out for in Major Barbara. Go and see it, wallow and enjoy, and come out and think. <laughs> and I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> um, given like the huge changes over like the last century, like and such a different world, really. I'm sorry, I. Hey, it's such. Hey, it's such a different world, like uh, politically, socially, culturally. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Could you speak a little more slowly? Sorry, um, I was just seeing that how different um, the modern world is from the Shaw's era, politically, socially, culturally, demographically, etc. And given how wrong he was about it politically on about um, the horrors of communism and all that, what kind of relevance? How wrong he was about what? Communism and yeah. how horrific he wrong about the gula, gulags, etc. What relevance do you think he has to the to a modern era, especially modern Ireland? I think he has every relevance um, because any, any great work of art remains 
eternally relevant. Um, it, the fact that he made um, one very grave mistake and was blind in one eye concerning um, Stalinism does not take away from the strength of his argument for um, a strong intellectual force in public life and uh, equal education and the duty as well as the right of every person to work for their own living. They were the premises on which um, he lived his life. And certainly, I think um, we, we have certainly failed on, in, in the duty of everybody believing that they must contribute to the national welfare in paid employment, um, unless, of course, they're forced into unemployment, uh, which is a different issue. Um, I think he remains entirely relevant. Um, people quite often, it's a very rigorous and a very awkward and a very uncompromising message, but it's extraordinarily relevant. Uh, have you come across any authors that you think are like a modern Shaw? Is, Golly. Is... Um, now that stumps me. I think, in a weird sort of way, except that the, you know, the plays aren't in any way comparable in their approach, but in the attitude towards life and society, I think perhaps there are comparisons to be made with Pinter. But writing nowadays is in a very different style. Um, you find that people expect eternal verities to uh, be delivered in 90 minutes without an interval. People don't have the patience and the concentration anymore. Okay. Oh, sorry, I'll just... Was there much uh, interaction in London between uh, Shaw and Oscar Wilde? They were kind of around the same year? Uh, yes, they, they, they were. Um, they met on a few occasions. Um, Shaw had enormous sympathy for him um, but and found him amusing and obviously thought a very, very, very serious wrong had been done him. But they, they came of, technically, of similar stock in that both were middle-class Protestant Dubliners, but their... their um, their lifestyle was just so entirely different as, as, you know, as not really to cross paths very much. The only thing they had in common was two eminent Irish men in London. So we've got time for one more question. Yep. Just um, uh, to make the point, uh, his copyright will shortly be up by my calculation, unless I'm completely wrong, in, in just a, a short number of years. Will that make a big difference the way everybody was expectantly waiting for uh, Joyce's copyright to be up, mm. and that came up shortly, and you know, Kate Bush and everybody was waiting to put something on, adapt his work. <laughs> will people try to adapt? Um, you know, would you have a comment uh, at all? I, I don't know if they do. I certainly hope they won't try to adapt. Now, the thing that I dread is uh, because there is freedom of copyright, um, you will have a number of, uh, shall we say, not the most talented fringe companies in the world um, having great fun with Shaw and thinking that they know more about him than he did. Um, and I dread it. Uh, and um, unfortunately, I will probably have to see some of those productions. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I think we've got to end it there, and um, we'll have to turn this um, this uh, reading uh, room back into a working bar in five minutes. So I'm inviting Mr. Arthur to clear the room. But before we go, I'd like to thank Ima and Kelly very much. Um, Very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. You'll find many more Abbey Theatre talks available to listen back to, along with details of future talks in the series, by visiting our website www.abbeytheatre.ie.